All right. Good. Well, let's do it, I guess. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinema Faith Podcast for April 2022. I am your host, Jonathan Butrin, and I am joined once again by the person I'd pick to drive my car any day, Tim Aww. Nelson. <laughs> That's Tim. so sweet, John. Aww, how you doing, man? It's good to see you. I'm doing all right. We're the uh, two days after Easter, so I'm still kind of recovering from the food and the family and all those good things. Yes. Was it a nice family day for you? It was for us, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. We we just had so much food. We had neighbors over. We had my uh, in-laws over and we had a indoor Easter egg hunt because it was so cold with the kids and we're still finding Easter eggs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it was snowing here in Milwaukee. So you got to love that beautiful spring weather we've got going on. I bet you don't miss that at all. I don't, although it wasn't, it, it kind of reached 40 where we were at. So we're always giving you an update of weather. Yeah, this is always our tradition. We're the, we're the weather report every time, even though it makes no sense because when, when you live in the Midwest, <laughs> it's like a big part of your life. Like I've lived other places and it's just like, eh, why would, would they talk about that? But for us, not only am I an old guy, but I also live in a place where it's like the weather's constantly changing. Right, right. And especially why would we talk about it if they're hearing this three weeks later where it's not relevant at all? That, that's the beauty of it. Because it's part of our, it's part of our suffering. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Which we'll be talking about a lot today. Yes. So Tim, before we get rolling, I want to bring back an old segment that we used to open our show with, which is, what have you been watching? So Tim, what was the last great movie or TV show that you partook in? Oh, so I get to say TV show finally. You can. Oh, you can do it. Yeah. I've been re-watching Community, which is on Netflix right now. And Donald I just, Glover and Chevy Chase at one point. Yeah, one for a while <laughs> until he like had creative disagreements with the creator, but yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, I've been watching that. That's fun. It's very meta and like usually it'll take a movie or a television show and like make a use that plot and then kind of pay homage to it or kind of spoof it. So it's kind of fun. What about you? Well, this may come as a surprise to our listeners, but I have been watching some TV as well. A little HBO, in fact, double surprise. And I know I've mentioned this before, but for our brand new listeners, you know, we don't normally talk about TV and here we both have, are talking about TV right now. But the reason is, is that we did decide as a, we made a group decision that Cinema Faith was solely going to be focused on movies because it's just easier to cover and we wanted to have kind of thorough coverage of the movies throughout the year. And when you're talking about TV, it's like, you know, what, 10, 13 episodes a season now. And it's just, it's so hard to keep up with. So that's why we decided we, we, since we couldn't give a proper coverage, we wouldn't talk about TV, but because it's my podcast, this is the one time where I kind of let it fly a little bit. So you will hear on this podcast and this podcast only some TV talk at times. So I also have been watching a TV show on HBO called Station Eleven, which is based on a book by Emily St. John Mandel. And it is amazing, Tim. This it's very topical because it takes place in a pandemic. But like in this case, it's not just COVID. It's basically you get this flu mut- mutation and you die. It's, it's 
it's over. There's no cure. There's nothing you can do. So it wipes out most of the world, and then you have these kind of pockets of survivors. And um, But the cool thing about the show, because that sounds like bleak and scary. Why would anyone want to watch that right now? But the cool thing about it is that it's a very optimistic take on humanity. Like it actually kind of takes the position of what if we actually kind of banded together after something like that and we revealed the best part of ourselves and it's very beautiful and not only is it like a really well made show like it I cried multiple times throughout it. It's just very life affirming is what I came to what I would call it at the end of it all It's very just it was beautiful and life affirming. And so if you want to experience that, I would highly recommend Station Eleven. It's the one of the only post apocalyptic uh, narratives that I can say was actually life affirming. So (laughs) (laughs) that's my favorite quote of the year. (laughs) It's the most life affirming post apocalyptic narratives. Isn't that crazy? You'd think like and they don't go together, but it does. Maybe. I, I don't haven't seen it yet. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. Good. So, Tim, uh, a lot has happened in the world since we last talked. In the world of movies, I should say. So the Oscars were a few weeks ago. Now, yeah. first of all, I'm also willing to bet that some of our older listeners are wondering why we have not covered the Oscars at all in the last two years. They come and went and nary a peep from us, which is weird because we usually are all over it, right? So loyal, not older, like not the older. 80, no, 90, 100 no. year olds, <laughs> no, the loyal to, listeners. Nothing to do with age, from the just beginning. the loyal. Yes. I got you. I follow. Our, our loyal listeners will recall that around Oscar time, we do like uh, Oscar write-ups. I do this big full thing, and we usually live tweet throughout the Oscar broadcast. But we've not done that two years in a row, basically just because we haven't been able to keep up on the movies is really the reason. I haven't personally been able to keep up on the movies properly because, I mean, I just went out to – started going to the theater again like you know a few months ago with Batman. So it's just not something I've been able to keep up with, so that's why I didn't feel like I could give it justice, and so we've sort of ignored it. But this year – I believe will be the year where we're back into things because I have been keeping up on 2022 and I think we're going to be back in action next year. So I did something that I had never done before this year, which was mostly because I had my wisdom teeth pulled. Oh, I saw gross. every bit. Be- I saw every nominee for best picture. You did. You, you did. Yeah, and you didn't yeah. do that when we were covering it. <laughs> no, I know you did. But see that doesn't that. But you probably didn't this year, right? Didn't this year. No, I didn't. No, but I did. So if you want to know an uninformed, uh, highly medicated opinion of any of those things, I got I you. Wanna I want to know you what, covered. You, what you believe is the best movie from last year, having seen all the best picture nominees of, of the best picture yeah, which one do you think uh, should this, have won? The one, the one we're reviewing today. That's why I bring okay. it up. Is I saw them all. Um, I thought, once again, I don't agree with the Academy. I thought this was the best picture. I don't know if they were. I don't know their motivation. My personal opinion is this is the best picture. Not an easy watch, but the best picture. So, so definitely. And then I, one I didn't really like that much was the P.T. Anderson one. With the you didn't like pizza. licorice pizza. I remember you texted me and. Uh... <laughs> I did like it. I do think that I agree with you that this is the best movie I've seen from last year, but I did like Licorice Pizza a lot more than you did. So we'll have to debrief that sometimes together. At some yeah. point, yeah. But yeah. I, yeah, definitely. And then I like Belfast. If you haven't seen Belfast, it's worth I've heard watching. Really good things about that. It's kind of like a, how Roma was. It's like a child, it's kind of like a childhood inside take on things. But not as, I, I wouldn't say it's the same level of quality as Roma, but it, but it, but it was good and, and worth watching. And what did you think of Coda that actually won Best Picture? Did you what did you think of it? I haven't seen it. Oh, I thought it was a good film. I don't know if I thought it was worth Best Picture. 
Yeah, we see so we have different streaming services here, so I could watch that. I could have watched that for uh, you know a hundred times because I have Apple, right? Me too, uh, and you yeah. have HBO, and I don't. So I've got all of them. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's, oh, good for you. I, no, it's not. It's not something to be proud of. It's it's just um, it's terrible. It's a good movie, but I don't think it's getting it. It doesn't get to the depth of the movie that we're going to review today. But I thought it was good. I think the uh, the affirmation of deaf actors and then the affirmation of codas which the child of a deaf adult is is pretty cool yeah so yeah what about the slap tim there was something that happened <laughs> at the Oscars that I'm I feel like, and I know, and I know that 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 our listeners probably don't even want to hear this because it's just been it's it's been covered so much that it's it's almost ridiculous. But I feel like there maybe are a couple that are like, you guys are the Oscar people. You, we owe it to those listeners to give our take on it. Do you have any thoughts on this? I just thought it was weird, man. I was so bizarre. Like I, I just, yeah, yeah. It's just absolutely bizarre. The response was so weird because you know like chris rock is gonna like he's gonna roast everybody at that show because that's chris rock so to not expect that seems strange and it seemed like the way kind of how do you you know to deal with that it would have been like well i know i don't understand will smith's motivation but i guess maybe he was very motivated by his wife so i don't know and it, it took away from I think the thing that I, that is that we shouldn't be talking about that. We should be talking about Will Smith's Oscar, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure so as now, he's looking back on it, that's what he wishes he had been right. talking. Right. And we should be going, Will Smith didn't deserve an Oscar for that performance. But instead we're looking at a different performance where he, where it was just so insane. So I don't get it. I think it is a whole, it did drag the, I, I think that took the Academy down. I think it was just awful for the Williams sisters. I can't imagine being them. Yeah. I mean, they produced, oh, they did some of the, they gave their blessing that film and the, and, and it was, a good, I saw that film too. And it was good. It was good. It was good. Yeah. And Will Smith was good. In it. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. It just seemed just bizarre to me. Like people were not in their right minds. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, like according to legitimate reports, Chris Rock didn't know about her medical condition. Now you can say maybe that's not true. I don't know if he didn't, it seemed like a pretty mild joke and a, and a big overreaction. And it wasn't even a funny joke. No, that's like the it was part, right? <laughs> right. Wait, so are we still like, making wow. GI Jane jokes? Like, God, when did that movie come out? I feel like at some yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think it, yeah, I don't think his action was excusable in any way. Um, no matter if you're quote unquote protecting your wife or whatever, but I also feel bad for the guy. I will say that like, I mean, He's probably not doing well, right? I mean, like, that's something. It's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to make a mistake on national television that's broadcast around the world and people talk about it for three weeks. And then also, like you said, to overshadow what should be the best day of your life. That's tough. Yeah. Or, and also, like, overshadowing the other nominees. So yeah. it was like, it, it kind of stole everything, right? The, the whole show, like the mo, like everybody had different, you know, for the award winners and not just the award winners, but those are being honored because now we're talking about that instead of the performances that were, that were uh, given or the cinematography or any of those other things. Now we're talking about some kind of, kind of foolish antics, like, and, and you know, you could say if not just foolish, it was an assault. So like, oh, that's it not, Absolutely. yeah. It's a violent assault. Yeah, it just is lousy. It's a bummer. But in any case, the best pictures, 
I thought those were interesting. And the, and the film that we we'll talk more about the film in a little bit. But yeah, I feel like the Academy missed it a little bit on what the best films of the year were. Yeah, well, let's get to it. I mean, so the movie we are discussing today, it's uh, we're kind of back to obscurity, like we mentioned last time. We did the Batman last time, and now uh, this one is not a superhero movie. It is not a mainstream movie. It's subtitled. So yeah, sorry to everyone who suddenly <laughs> became interested in our podcast, because maybe someone forwarded in the Batman podcast, and now they're like, what the heck? But uh, <laughs> some, you know, we, we go in and out. It's okay. You stick with us. Um, but the movie we are discussing today is Drive My Car, and yeah, it's not total obscurity. I mean, like you said, it was nominated, one of the nine nominated for Best Picture, and it did win uh, the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. So, I mean, it's not like the spotlight was shown on it. So hopefully you are, some of our listeners have at least heard of it and we'll check it out after we talk about it. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's one like all the critics lists. So yeah, like, oh, if, you ask, if you ask critics and not Academy members, I mean, like, there's no debate except the Academy decides that they will pick something else. It makes me wonder if, if your film is not in English if you are not going to win no matter what. Hmm. And that bothers me. And then the, that the Academy would be off so much from the rest of the, from the critics. Now, is this movie more watchable than Coda? No, Coda is way more watchable. It's, it's easy. It's much easier. I will say Parasite won Best Picture a couple years ago, right? And that was fully subtitled. Oh, that's so we, true. We got to cut a little slack to the Academy. They did nail it that year. But at the same time, I completely agree that in this particular case, Drive My Car seems to be better than Coda. And the fact that it's... I don't know. Maybe that's just the, the thing is that Parasite also had a little bit more of an accessible story. A little bit more of like you can kind of... It was suspenseful. It was, you know, it was enthralling. Coming of age. It had the... Yeah. So Coda has the uh, has a lot of stuff that keeps attention and it doesn't demand anything of the person who's watching. Mm-hmm. I also think that you know as as we're looking at drive my car, it's got so many illusions. It's so dense. It's thick. It's got you know Russian playwrights. It's got all this stuff in it, and that makes it really hard to like just watch it because you mm-hmm. have to know a lot of background. And I don't. I didn't know half the background. So. I think that's difficult. Much more work yeah. than Coda. Coda was like if you didn't, you could just watch it, and you didn't need to have any reference. You could. They would take. They would give you everything you needed for sure. But here we are, and uh, at least we can be the ones to sound the uh, trumpets that this is a movie worth watching, worth diving into. And I hope, listeners, that if you haven't heard about this movie or you haven't seen it, that you will after we talk about it, because it is definitely, uh, both of us agree, from what I've seen and from what Tim has exhaustively and thoroughly seen, the best movie of last year. So let's get into it. Here we go. So Tim, let's say that you are one of our listeners and you've never heard of Drive My Car. How would you describe the movie from a plot perspective like if someone were to say well what's that about what would you that's say the, that's the problem right it's a difficult one i mean i could try uh how about a playwright grapples with the loss of his wife and the meaning of life and suffering mm-hmm. and he does it in well a couple contexts but because they follow us over a number of years like what, two or three years and so i would say it's it's him dealing with that and also he's dealing with it in in a community of sorts and that's allowing him to get to a place where he couldn't otherwise. So it's kind of like a, it's a journey of trying to be honest and also like learn what it means to live after great loss. Mm, that's beautiful. Wow. What a great summary. Thank you. I will dive into a little more of the specifics of the plot to kind of 
give people a context for what we'll be talking about. But that was like perfect from a from a general standpoint. So basically, like Tim said, this guy, his name is, and I'm going to apologize up front here. Okay, we're dealing with a foreign film. We're dealing with foreign names. This these are very difficult to pronounce. I'm probably going to butcher them. I'm probably for us. It's <laughs> yeah, I know for us, and I'm I'm just sorry if anyone knows these people or are familiar with the, their work. I'm just sorry if I completely butcher their names, but. The theater director's name is uh, Yusuke Kafuku, and he has a wife named Otto, and they're in love, they're happy, it would seem, and they're both into stories. He uh, is a, a theater director, and she is like a screenwriter, and she likes to, th- all this takes place in like the first half hour, she likes to come up with stories, specifically during uh, lovemaking, which is interesting. Uh, usually she, she'll like, they'll, they'll, after they are intimate, she'll come up with like a new angle to a story she's been working on. On and he'll listen. It's kind of, kind of fascinating there. And when they meet, they they seem to be in love. And then, but we also find out that their life has been marked by tragedy because they had a daughter who died at age four. We don't know how long ago that happened, but it was a while ago. Also, there's something wrong with their marriage because one time Kafuku comes home and he his wife is is making love with another person, and he doesn't seem like super surprised about it, as if maybe this happens sometimes, and he just kind of leaves the house and goes on his way and then his wife dies again this is in the beginning i'm not spoiling anything his wife dies of a cerebral hemorrhage and then we fast forward a few years and now he is a resident in training in a residence of a, like a resident theater director in hiroshima japan mm-hmm. right hiroshima and he is putting on a play by Chekhov called uncle vanya and he ends up hiring as the lead role, the very person that he saw his wife cheating on, and that kind of leads to all the rest of the things that happen, which I will not spoil. There's a lot of conflict and a lot of, like you said, everyone in the film is dealing with tragedy and suffering and the way they interact. And uh, the other part of the story I should mention, why it's called Drive My Car, is this theater has this rule in place that he is not allowed to drive himself to and from his the place where he stays at night, and it's an hour away, and he specifically picked it an hour away so he could kind of practice his lines or or have the play kind of being um, immerse himself in the play on the drive there, but there he's not allowed to drive himself. So they hire a driver for him and her name is Misaki and they're forced to kind of spend all this time in the car together. And that becomes a central point of the film. So there you go. That's sort of the minutia. Tim gave you the overview and I kind of dove in a little bit. I hope that gives you some context of what this is all about and we'll go further. It's not easy. It's not an easy watch because it's complicated mm-hmm. and you have to read too, because most of it, is not is not in english and so you're gonna have to read so i'd say i'd say that's difficult but yeah, and it requires patience overall right there is mm-hmm. a, a major payoff in the end but there's no question that this is not a movie that you just pop on at 1 a.m and uh you know give it a go it's like you've got to be a little ready for it but it totally is worth the journey and everything they set up which requires patience totally gets paid off in the end so that's i definitely say that as well so Drive My Car is directed by Rasuki Hamaguchi. Uh, he was nominated for Best Director for this, and oh, I've, I've not I've not seen any of his other movies. But as far as directing on this one, it's definitely a very understated directing choices that he makes if you're looking at specifically what he you know there's there's not a lot of visual flourishes. It's very sort of letting the actors be front and center, right, Tim? I think so. I one of the things I I noticed as far as just like the visual. Nature, I mean, like the visuals here is that everything's kind of very gray and drab, except for the car. 
which is bright red. I didn't even notice that. That is so yeah. true now that you say that. Yeah. And the car so is like the life center of the movie. Yeah. Of the whole, yeah. So it pops everywhere it goes. Yeah. So like I know in some countries, like the most of the cars are gray, black, or white. And this car is bright red and it's a 1990 or 91 Saab. And it pops everywhere you go. You see the car and, it, and it's winter time and everything is dark, like gray scale and there's no leaves on the trees and there's snow, but the car is like really becomes the center of the, of the movie because it's bright red. So I like that contrast. Yep. That's a choice right there. And then, mm-hmm. you know, even if like, you know, yeah, I think one of the misnomers that you think about when you talk about directing is you're like, oh, a good directed movie is like Tony Scott changing filters all the time and the camera goes upside down. And it's like, no, actually, the director's primary job is to work with actors and get the best performances of the actors. Like that's what the for one of the first things you learn in film school is that directors work with the actors. And I believe if you're if you're going from that angle. I mean, this is a very well-directed film because the performances are front and center and they're all fantastic throughout. So yeah, I think he does a great job. And like what you said, there's all these little flourishes too. So yeah. And as far as the acting is concerned, one thing that really stood out to me was that like the performances are very understated by the very necessity of the characters, right? Most of the characters that are front and center, the main ones are kind of suppressing themselves because of what they've endured. And so these are not performances that are very flashy. They're very like, they're kind of walking around as shells of a human being, Kafuku, Masaki. And that takes a different skill set as an actor, I would think, because you want to be, I think, I think actors like those kind of, you know, ham it up performances because you get to like act, but it's a lot different <laughs> when you have to spend an hour kind of just being a robot, but not in a boring way, in a way that actually makes sense for the character, you know? Yeah, and you see that because they do a bunch of readings in the movie, which, which if it, the director had to make the choice to have those readings in there because they're not only the con- the content, you get to see the character of the characters, but the content of the, they're doing a play by uh, Chekhov and the content of the play and the lines of the play. And then what we get to realize toward the end is that the lines matter so much that you can't just memorize your lines. You got to memorize the whole thing. And so they think they're doing a read through, but what he's trying to do is get them to know every line in the play. So he actually asked them to like take any affectation and remove it. So I the love actors, that. Yeah. What? <laughs> what do you want us to do? And they're like, no, 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 no. Remove the affectation. We're, and he doesn't tell them why they're doing it. Right. And the one, there's this one actor in the play, like the main character, who's like just wants to. He keeps trying to inject even a little bit of emotion. And the guy to the left or to his right or whatever is just reading it totally like boring. And the the main actor who's trying to do the emotion is getting really frustrated. And then the director's like, no. The guy to your right's doing it the right way. It's like, it's like, so like anti-acting. Right, right. And, and it gets kind of revealed at the end that like we have to be more, even more familiar with the other characters' lines in order for us to do our lines, mm-hmm. which I was like, oh, oh, that's big because it makes sense for the whole movie. It's huge. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but from an acting perspective, right, you have Misaki, both Misaki and Kafuku are like basically uh, don't spend a lot of time emoting until the end, which makes it that 
what what gets revealed about them and where the journey that they eventually get to that much more powerful because of what we've seen you know in that middle section so that's good acting i mean probably the flashiest role in the movie is that young actor i just mentioned his name is koji played by masaki okada he's kind of this i guess we don't know much about the context but he's supposed to be this sort of young hot actor that's been in a lot of movies he's very famous and he's doing this play for some reason and he's been cast in the in the title role and he's been he's lost his agent because he basically has been out of control in every area of his life so exactly uh, he, he, had a lot, he had a relationship you know, with a younger girl right or something like that yeah and and so he just he is he and, and he gets confronted at, at one point in the movie. He's like you have you have you have no control like no self-control at all and that's like considered and, and it, it says look, there's pluses and minuses to that but you, it could really hurt you in the long run if you have no self-control and, and you're acting too yeah. Yeah. So he's the, the during this period where our main characters are kind of walking around robotically. He's the one that sort of like draws our attention the most because he's yeah, he's just out of control all the time. He's doing impulsive things. And so but he's explosive, too. Yeah. So like he's captivating and he would. Yeah. His performances would be. Yeah. If they were in a Marvel movie, they'd be really interesting. <laughs> right. Because It's a little over the top, a little aggressive, a little Tony Stark. And. <laughs> Yeah, a little a little Tony Starkish, and he's the film star. But but that's also it's the the kind of double edged sword. So he's it's also wrecking his personal life and his professional life, even though he's it's very interesting to an audience. Yeah. So, but really, all the performances across the board are great in this, and in the movie does live and die by them, and it's a very character driven piece. And so, I was really mm-hmm. impressed with with everybody in the movie. So, I want to kind of take a detour, Tim, and I want to kind of a little tra- break from tradition of our normal uh, format. I just want to dive right into sort of some things that sit out to me and then throughout we can sort of discuss and center in on some of the themes like throughout the rest of the podcast so instead of setting aside a certain section for that let's just go ahead and get to it all the the center of it all thematically is that cool sure all right so one thing that really struck me was the diversity of language that's presented in the movie like sort of the depths that we'll go to communicate with each other and how like our emotions transcends language. And there's so many different languages depicted, right? I know off the top there's Japanese, Mandarin, Korean, sign language, English, right? There's so many different languages. And during rehearsals for the play, Yusuke will say his direction in, it's either Japanese or Korean. I don't know what his main language is. Did, did you pick up on that? Uh, Japanese. Japanese. So he'll speak it in Japanese and then he'll speak it in English, right? To one of mm-hmm. the actors that speaks in English, which is so interesting hearing that contrast back and forth between the way both of them are presented side by side. And then there's the sign language piece because one of the actors who Yusuke hires acts entirely in sign language. Then they're able to do that because when they put on the play, there's a screen that reveals all of the dialogue in all the various languages for whoever's there. So she's able to sign her lines and then people can read them on the screen. And there's that beautiful scene where they go for dinner to meet the sign language that her name is Lee Yoon Ah. That's uh, her name of her character who does this, who uh, her language is signing and they meet her husband Gong and they go out for dinner. The playwright or the director, sorry, and his driver Masaki go out for dinner with, with that couple. And we kind of hear their story and how he learned sign language. Gong learned sign language to win to sort of, because he wanted to communicate with Lee Yoon Ah 
And uh, it's just beautiful how that scene progresses and how the movie really takes its time. Like, and that's another thing I appreciate is it takes its time for her to like sign. And then he sort of processes what she's saying and then translates it. And I, I just thought it was really beautiful. All these languages coming together and, and how that all interacts with each other. What did you think about that? Tim? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was cool. I think that it kind of takes its cues from Hiroshima. So like I look mm. at, the city and the city is, is this big, I mean, I was looking up all the different uh, monuments. It is a monument to world peace at this point. It's like, how do we never do this again as is humanity? And so that everything is translated in all these different languages throughout the city. So that when you go to the different, and that's even in the film, like they t- basically tour all these places. Mm-hmm. And so that as you go through the city, it's like a, the world goes there. And then once a year, the world goes there too to commemorate. And so they go, you go through and it's like the idea is that we have this big connection and we have more to gain together and that we have to work towards some, some kind of peace because this can't happen again. Yeah. And so that kind of takes its cue from the, I mean, it makes sense. Why would they have it in multiple languages here and how, who would put up with that as a play as is going to a performance? And I'm like, Oh, this city would, and they would do it very intentionally. Yeah. So that made, that made sense to me. That's so cool. I didn't even pick up on that. And then the depths that we need to go to communicate with each other and stay in relationship with each other to avoid something like that happening again. That's beautiful. Yeah. And then some of the stuff we didn't pick up on, which is that like traditionally there's a, and I don't want to speak for whole groups, but they, I guess there was a survey of the Korean people and it's like 80 something percent of them didn't think they could trust Japanese people at all. And wow. that's, that has a long history going back to the you know 16th and 17th century. And so in, in real, you know, war crimes and all kinds of stuff. And I even experienced that in seminary. I was in a group that had a Japanese woman and then two Korean men and, it, and they explained it to me. I had no idea. Mm. And so then you see a couple who's married and one is Japanese and one is Korean. One does sign language and one had to learn it. And it's like, there's just a lot of work going into connection. And I, I it's just like pretty, pretty cool. That is cool. And yeah. And then you also have, yeah, so multiple languages, English, and you have somebody that was born in China and, and all these, all this stuff happening. So it was, yeah, that's very intentional. Yeah. And then staying with that same theme of language, you already mentioned the idea of the words that we speak and the way, and, and the movie really plays with this, how, you know, it's important to focus on just the words and not the emotions. And then, and only then when we let those words sink in, then we can, you know, insert the emotions. Like we talked about that, the way that he did that that rehearsal where you're supposed to just read the words. And then we see it in the same way where Yusuke drives around with his wife. So his wife, Otto, his late wife who died, she recorded lines to the play that he w- that he used to help learn because Yusuke originally was the one playing the title role of Uncle Vanya in the original production. And so to learn his lines, his wife sort of made this tape where she recorded all of the lines that played opposite of him. And he just drives around and listens to this and you see you hear it because her her reading is fairly emotionless too and you just he sort of it's like a meditation he just lets the words sink in throughout this drive constantly and it means something more obviously because it's his wife's words that are speaking to him i just thought that interplay between emotion versus non-emotion and focusing on the words it's it's really fascinating so i like in chaplaincy they they say that and i probably didn't do it just now but in chaplaincy they say 
that a lot of times we can get focused on our response to someone. And this happens in like just speaking or listening or active listening, right? So that we check out and we don't listen to the other person and we lose it. We, that's where we like lose all the communication. So in this, it's like saying, know the other person's lines, you know, and then before you can even know your own. Yeah. And, and then you'll be able to actually come from a place of honest care. So like, no, be, be more attentive to the other lines than your own. And I think that that's where the actors are struggling is they want to know their lines. Mm -hmm. But, but the idea of the other matters and the other is what's going to actually allow us to respond with authenticity, not our, not what we drum up both in acting and in real life, like in acting. Right. Yeah. That's where honest acting comes from is actually listening to the other person. And then, yeah, in real life too, I just actually, it's so funny you mentioned that because two days ago I had to take a mandatory management thing at my work on active listening. And that's one of the things they said is don't wait to respond because if you're truly listening, that response that you dreamt up in your head might no longer be necessary. Right. And that's, yeah, just it's honoring the other person that, that you let the conversation go where it needs to go. I experience that in this podcast all the time because you usually take us places I never envisioned and it's way better than anything I could have drummed up. So yeah, that's huge. Well, we just, we, I think that's the idea. Like we have the, even in a podcast, you have the other, that's why it's hard to do it. Just one person. Yeah. When I started this podcast, uh, I was just me and I went on for like an hour and a half by myself. And Dan Baker's main comment was you need a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> I've awesome. uh, deleted all of those episodes. You cannot find them. But Aww, uh, I want to yeah. hear your long rants again. They're dead. <laughs> it's terrible. So anyway, um, but you're totally right. Yeah, the importance of the other, honoring the other in both art and real life. It's beautiful. In, in, and then also in the midst of their suffering and our suffering so that we seek to understand the other and then also to know how we feel, like seek to know ourselves as well. So like, how do, how do I actually feel? What have I, maybe I haven't been feeling Maybe mm -hmm. I've been avoiding like my feelings. So you have, you have this coming out of this film and what is, I think authenticity is a big theme. So how do I be, how do I live authentically? And so even in the midst when my life isn't going how I had hoped and I feel like I've wasted it, how do I still live authentically? And that's difficult, I think. And that's how Kafuku and Misaki can actually get to the place at the end of the film where they finally throw off their shells, their hard layers that they've, you know, put on them and they can get to that place of genuine emotional intimacy and authenticity at the end. It's because through their conversations, through their just that that's what the main the main thrust of the film is their conversations in the car and that gets them to that place so yeah i totally agree with you i totally agree with you. is it that they get to that place in in the in the car and then even the act of like driving someone else's car when you allow somebody to drive you in your car as we will soon learn with our kids it's like a big act of trust because it's like this thing that you care about and even more so for him the car has this symbolism of this is his past this is his wife this is the car is I mean, nobody drives around. Well, few people do, but he's driving around a what thirty-year-old Saab. Yeah, right. I mean, that's I guess some folks do that, but 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 the idea is like he can't let go of it. It's from when he was he worked in TV before he did play, so he was making money at some point, and so that's from his days when he was. He, he says in the film that when he was happy, and mm. so he's handing the the token of his past happiness to to this person that he just met, and I think it's a very big act of trust. Yeah. And, and I think that trust continues 
because he sees that that person is careful with him, like provides and listens well and doesn't speak much actually. Right. It's the, it's, it's the antithesis of the great actor that we're the young actor that we see in the film is this quiet. It's a, a certain quietness and, uh, and pain that he picks up on in, in the, the driver that allows him to trust. She's a good listener, Misaki, the driver. And she also, yeah, like you said, allows him, she allows him the space to reveal himself in an authentic way. She's not always trying to interject. She's not always trying to assert herself at all. She's the exact opposite of that. And that honoring is what allows him to reveal what he's been bearing. So it's a slow, kind of a slow trust process. And it's based in, she, she has a literal scar on her face from her pain, but it's based on like being able to honestly reveal a little bit at a time as trust is built and then able to actually talk about the kind of the full wounding that people have experienced. Not going to sell a lot of tickets anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Back to that. I know, I know. But how extremely meaningful. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I did like the contrast between Yasuki and that young actor, Koji. You know, you got this like grizzled older director and he's faced all this life experience. And then this Koji guy is just like this young hot thing and just cannot control himself. And it's so interesting how they both shared the same woman and they both loved her in, a, in their own way. And then the fact that that Kafuki hires him to be the same part that he himself played and that he, you know, his wife ran lines for him for. It's just so, there's a lot going on there, right? A lot uh-huh. of tension, a lot of subtext. And to me, like the standout scene of the whole movie was when Koji is telling the story that Otto told him, which is a continuation of the story. So like at the beginning, we see Otto telling a story to Yusuke about this girl who keeps breaking into this boy's home because she's obsessed with him or whatever. And so we, we see that, we hear that story up to a point, but then Koji fills in the rest of the story that Yusuke's never heard. And the subtext there is that Koji probably heard it after making love to Otto, right? And which is a whole, it's a whole other thing. And so, but also it's a parable that story is, mm. and it, it's a confession for, of someone who can't confess. So a confession know, from, from Otto, and uh, maybe even Otto. maybe even Koji mm-hmm. to a certain extent, right? In that car, yeah, yeah, possibly, yeah, that too. I I think that the I think that that says that she knew what that she did it, and she had remorse for it, but was but wasn't able to, and she and she bore the suffering that is related to him not basically responding to that. But yeah, she does identify herself as a lamprey, which right the girl in be, the story was a, was a lamprey in a former life. Yeah, yeah, in the story. So and she she really identifies with that. And so the the lamprey exists only when it can suck the the blood and nutrients of another fish. It latches onto them, mm. and a lamprey without that isn't able to survive. And she's identifying herself as I feel like a parasite. Yeah. And who knows when I'll die? Who knows when I won't? But she's using that to say, this is me. Perhaps who feels the need to get more and more from other people, even though it's costing this emotional harm to her husband. Yeah. And it might be, she, you know, post, I wonder like, so post the death of their child, Mm -hmm. does she just not ever feel alive? That's a good point. And only when she's making up these, you know, as she's creating these stories, it's like sex and stories and that's it. Yeah. And she feels like this creature that basically sucks a life out of another creature. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 
a lot of guilt. But that scene was incredible, right? Where where Koji's telling that story, he's he's tearing up, and because I, I think there is an element where he understands what he's done to Kafuku as well. And then after that, then. For the very first time, it's interesting because Kafuki goes to the front seat for the passenger seat of the car. He's been in the back seat this whole time. And because Masaki, of course, is driving the car this whole time, she's heard everything that's happened. And it's almost like they cross a different point in their relationship because of that encounter, because of what she's witnessed. So he goes in the passenger seat and then he hands her a cigarette for the first time also because they weren't previously. They don't smoke in the car. He won't let her smoke in the car. So he hands her a cigarette. They smoke together, and then there's this very cool shot of them sort of flicking the cigarette, both hands, both of their hands, um, flicking their cigarettes in the sunroof, and you see yeah. a close-up of their hands. Oh, beautiful. Just really that cool. Was a, that's like a great shot. Like, that's the yeah. shot of the movie right there. Totally, totally. But the, if the car sim- symbolizes, like, his this, this past that he can't, that he wants to get back to but can never get back to, then smoking a cigarette in the car is like s- saying okay, we, it's time to, you know, I'm willing to do this and I'm not going to, this isn't going to be a temple anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. And even moving so, from so, the back to the front, there's some, there's that too. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she affirms like, Hey, he sounded like he was telling the truth, even if it was just true to him. He, he basically confesses that he thought he was in love with her, but she really didn't love him. She was using him to get the stories. She was using him to feel and using him as a substitute, you know, for her husband. And he thought that she loved him. So he, mm-hmm. he's got, so, so at the moment he talks, I mean, he's really talking about his suffering to a certain degree too. Yep. The best he can in that context. Cause he says, I've come here cause I want change the young actor. And, and, and I guess he did, he got it. <laughs> he got it <laughs> Yeah. in ways we won't spoil. Yeah. We'll let you watch the movie. I love this idea of the car becoming sort of a confession booth. Right. And you mentioned it's a temple, which I do think in one way, you're right. That like the, the, it was a temple to Kafuki in the, in a bad way. And it's sort of like he was holding onto the past and then it becomes something different. But throughout the whole movie, the, it kind of becomes a temple too. Right. And, and I feel like these intimate conversations that come out, of it it's sort of this place that you can go where you can let you can let out what's really going on inside and we don't have many places like that anymore and i lament that right like i mean that's what church is supposed to be right it's supposed to be the one place where you can be yourself where you can be real but church has become often the exact opposite of that it's the place where you have to put on a mask and act like you're everything's great and you're doing you're doing just fine and like the one you know and sometimes you have i don't know accountability groups in churches where you can be real with each other but it usually is focused on sex and it's just this weird sort of sub thing and it's i just wish i guess i lament the fact that we can't come up with some sort of model that actually is a place where we could truly be ourselves. I feel like the closest you come to that is going down the street to a bar on a Sunday where people are actually able to be honest with each other with a little alcohol. And so, yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? I like what he said about the checkoff play. He says that it brings out the truth about us when we stay close to the script. And so he says, this is a dangerous play. Are you sure? Cause this will bring out the truth about who we are and, mm-hmm. and you will begin to uh, respond to it. It'll bring it out. And I sense that like that when we're taking scripture seriously, when we're taking each other's, you know, when we're, we're kind of in, in the, the word, you know, I don't get real, I probably don't get too bibliocentric here, but like when we're taking scripture seriously and we're taking our, our narrative seriously 
to the point where we, we are subject to it rather than using it for something. There tends to be this thing where it brings out the truth about us and it can be very difficult. But, and then that process would be that we're in a community of people who are doing the same thing. So we're subject to this narrative, to the scriptures, to our beliefs, to our creeds, to Christ, to the Holy Spirit. And then we would begin to be in this process of that'd be normal. And so that it's, and it's not an easy process. It's, it's, it's nasty. Yeah. It's not a straight up into the right kind of process either. It's stepping in at all time. <laughs> I love that idea where the, in the, in the movie Chekhov's play, his words are kind of the, the meditation of, of Kafuki all the time, right? He's always playing in them in the car and that's what's like driving him. And it's like deep in his soul. And the fact that, and then, and then comparing that to how as, as Christians, we're supposed to be immersing ourselves in, you know, not just scripture, but Jesus as the ultimate word. And like that, Mm-hmm. the meditation of our heart and that's what's supposed to inform our interactions that's really cool and it's true and if we do it the right way then we get to places where we can have authentic communities and we can have and i've experienced it in pockets in seasons you know where you really feel like you can be who you truly are and it's beautiful when it happens it's just not the norm unfortunately yeah like, i think you're right and in the in the film like the best acting is from the person that doesn't speak at all they speak with sign language. So they don't actually have, there's no, we don't hear anything. And that's, and we have the, we experience the best acting and like the meaning of the whole, the whole thing is from somebody that we cannot hear. Totally. And so I, I think that that's, that's part of the point that we would know the, that the, the, the suffering and the life of the other becomes the focus. So if the, if our lives are the focus and we tend to try to protect our image for the other, rather than if the other becomes the focus, then we begin to, we, we realize commonality pretty quickly that we're all, we all have our stuff. But and I see that in 12 step groups. Uh, I see that in good therapy, right? But the, the church, I think doesn't always have a history of that. Right, because it's really about you, like you said, if you're not focused on the other and you're focused on your own sort of personal holiness project and projecting that image every Sunday, you know that's uh, it's not a path to intimacy with anyone. <laughs> Put on your Sunday best emotionally, right. uh, yeah, so that we're always self modeling. The thing that's and then like when we self model, so when we I'm I'm speaking of we, but probably me when I self model. I will t- it takes a lot of energy. So when I try mm. to get to, I, when I try to say a thing that I think John wants to hear, it takes too much work. Like yeah. I can't do it. And it is acting, right? And all I want to do is I could, I could probably do that for an hour or two, but then I want to go and like, just, I feel like totally drained versus, and we could be drained by our own stuff, you know, by our own uh, junk that we're dealing with in our lives. But I think in that vulnerability is where we find that healing. And we better, I think all of us can identify people in our lives that make us feel like that, right? That make us feel like we have to hide who we truly are, that make us feel like we have to walk on eggshells. And it is draining. And you come back exhausted and you just want to run to those people that you can be safe with, that you can truly be yourself with. Yeah. Yeah. So so I guess shame is like one of the, the idea of, of shame and suffering so that we would feel a deep sense of shame. I mean, part of the story here is like that people are so afraid of shame that they will hide all the time. I mean, that's part of our big narrative too, is Mm -hmm. that we would rather hide our true selves than to bear those things and and have the possibility of being shamed by a community. And there's an idea too that I really loved about how art can 
sort of function as this tool that brings up those emotions inside of us. We already talked about the play and we talked about scripture and which is another, you know, artistic expression and sort of how this art can reveal what's truly inside of us. And like you mentioned this already, but Yusuke was scared. He's scared to play Uncle Vanya because he knows what the words and what the art is going to draw out of him. And that scares him. And when it comes to the point where he has to decide whether to do it, he doesn't think he can because he knows that it's going to bring him to a place that's too hurtful and too real, right? And you have that practice session in the park where the two female actors are, they like are no longer acting. Like their words have sort of taken over and it becomes something. Can they understand each other? I don't know. What do you mean? I think that they can't. So like in that, because one of them understands what Japanese and Korean sign language and the other one only knows she speaks Chinese and English. Mm-hmm. I think so. I'm trying to, I, right, I need right, right. to go back and see who, I don't know if they can understand each other, but they know the lines so well that they get what's going on. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Right. It transcends language in that moment. Right. Which is the beauty of it. And Kafuku even says like something has happened here between those actors. That's all he says. It's almost like he treats it like a holy moment that to talk about it would be to cheapen it. And, and what happens is the young, the younger actress that she's born in China, she was basically used by the older guy who has no, uh, not the older guy, the uh, younger actor who doesn't have self-control. So basically they had one night stand or whatever. And so she experienced this suffering where she thought that they were going to be in love, but really it wasn't that at all. And yeah. you can see like the uh, Korean sign language woman could, can tell that she, you know, she uses the, the narrative as a way to kind of enter into that suffering and she sees her. And I think that's key to like every, everything in this is that we, is that she's able to see her, see what she's been through and then begin to come alongside and listen. And then the, the text almost becomes, I mean, it's not meaningless, but the te- the text might bring this out, but it really, it's like human connection that's occurring. And the text is just a vehicle for it. Yeah, right. Exactly. I found the same thing. I mentioned Station Eleven at the beginning. There's the the same theme shows up there where where art kind of becomes this vehicle for expressing what's truly inside of ourselves. So in the in the show, there's in this like fast forward like 20 years after the pandemic has wiped out most of humanity. There's this traveling troupe, and they put on Shakespeare plays, and they call it the Wheel, and they go around basically from city to city, and they cover this circle. And once a year, they arrive in your city and they put on another Shakespeare play. And there's this beautiful moment towards the end of the series where this girl who is kind of in charge of the production, she specifically gives roles of Shakespeare and Hamlet to two people who need to connect with each other, who are, who are, it's a mother and and son and they have been estranged and she gives them these roles and these lines because they know that the, the text will bring that out in them. And it's really hard to explain, but basically I hate Shakespeare. Like, honestly, like I just hate the, the whole, you know, I just, all sounds just like totally foreign to me and I can never understand it. But in this moment, these two characters, are speaking sign language and be or not sign language. They're speaking Shakespeare's words, but be, and mm-hmm. which I don't understand. But because you understand the relationship of them and what they're trying to express, like it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I'm crying listening to Shakespeare <laughs> simply not because of the words, but because of what they're expressing to each other in their in their emotions and their faces. Mm-hmm. And that's just another example of that where the words matter, but in a way they don't. And yeah, it was really cool, and I think you see that here too. Yeah, it's it's hard because this is a hard podcast because usually we can like do a lot of banter. This is like a like very like meaning, no. meaningful, intense kind of thing, 
And so we <laughs> the movie yeah. forms the path. That's all you can do. So yeah. we, so we've both been kind of emotionally moved by this movie. And I know I'm, I'm sensing that with you and it's hard to, and now we're kind of explaining it, both of us, <laughs> but it's hard to like, we, it's hard to communicate that you have to kind of be part of the movie, immerse yourself, turn everything off and yep. watch it. That's this kind of a film for sure. And yeah. there, I wonder if it has some significance to like our spiritual life too, right? It's like, if we want to experience stuff, we tend to want to go for the stuff that will make us feel good, impress us, wow us. But maybe it's like more con- uh, contemplative. So maybe mm-hmm. at least for me, I know like the turning stuff off and and letting ourselves feel like that's one of the big themes I think in the movie is I didn't let myself feel hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and because right. I didn't let myself feel hurt, I'm full of regret and I'm miserable and I didn't yell at the person I was supposed to yell at. And you don't hear that ever because that would be inappropriate, yep. but it wouldn't be. It would have been inappropriate in this in the in the film here. And, and it's spewing yeah. out in other ways because I haven't properly felt it and dealt with uh-huh. it and let that heal. Yeah. So it's a movie about peace. I mean, in some ways, it's like, how do we, how, how then do we live? How do we find peace in the midst of where it seems like our lives are? I mean, I think Hiroshima is like a big background because it's like everything got, we had a hundred and some thousand people die here. Mm-hmm. And then we had to rebuild and here's how we rebuilt. And so they rebuilt the whole city where there's a line going through the city from where the drum bomb dropped all the way through past the trash plant. Remember this part? Mm. So they, mm-hmm. they have windows so you can watch the garbage get incinerated, but they weren't going to like break the line from where the bomb dropped to the ocean. They, were, they the architect changed the, changed the plan and made it so you could walk all the way there and it was a clear zone. But I just, and so, yeah. And, and I also like that metaphor. Like you have to like go and go through the garbage to get to, 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 you know, as part of that suffering to get to the, wherever you're going. I read this quote by Annie Dillard, which touches on that. It was in this book I've been reading uh, by Richard Rohr, but this quote by Annie Dillard says in the deeps, are the violence and terror of what psychology has warned us. But if you ride those monsters down, if you drop with them farther over the world's rim, you find what our sciences cannot locate or name, the substrate, the ocean or matrix or ether, which buoys the rest, which gives goodness its power for good and evil its power for evil, the unified field, our complex and inexplicable caring for each other and for our life together here, which is given, not learned. That's by Annie Dillard. I thought that was really powerful. And it's sort of that idea of like art can become a way to to sort of tap into things that we didn't know about that were inside of us or all the things that we've suppressed. And if you ride that, if you allow that vehicle to take you down, you get to sort of this thing beyond words, beyond everything that sort of is the connector between the space between words, really, which is what we see in the in the play in certain moments. And, you know, where where the words fall away and all we have is what's what actually matters. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I I like that. That's a cool quote. And the idea of like, how do we, in some ways it's like the, it's like very, uh, dual, like pole, there's poles, right? So like, how do we, how do we even like affirm the good if we don't know the the bad? Hmm. And I think there's some level of like, if you've gone through suffering, then you know what good feels like. And maybe you're not capable. I know some suffering is so debilitating. I don't think it's going to get anything's going to good come out of that. This side of, you know, uh, the eschaton or whatever. But I do think that there is, we do have the capability to, to go, well, I know that this isn't good. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. and I know I can work toward a different good in my life, but also usually it's not us doing self-improvement. And I think this film captures it, which it's no, no. So like at the end of the, of the film, do you mind if I would, let's do it. Yeah. I want to go there. I want to, let's close with talking about this theme of suffering and what we see at the end. That's what I want to do. Yeah. So at the end through the time in the car with his driver, we realize that the young girl who's 23 has gone through basically a horrible, miserable suffering basically watching as her mom dies in a landslide and all this other stuff. So a bunch of events occur and it makes it so our main character has to play, be confronted with, am I going to play Vanya or not in this film? Which last time he played Vanya, he basically had a episode where he couldn't continue because it was too emotionally overwhelming for him. He just had to stop and he's like, I don't know if I can do it. And so he does something that's pretty radical, which is he's, they give him a couple days to, go and make his decision. And so what he does is instead of just like going and thinking about it for himself, he goes, here's a person next to me who's suffering yeah, or who has suffered. So I'm going to make, take myself and not make me the main deal. I'm going to have her be the main deal. And so they traveled from Hiroshima to Hokkaido or oh, a village near Hokkaido. And so I map quested that nice 28 hours research 28 hours it felt like a long time because they had to drive they had to take a ship right yeah they did a ferry and i didn't do the ferry leg of it but if you just drove it and it might include those things 28 hours and so they have like they started driving immediately and the idea is that he wants to see what he's really going like i want to see what happened i want to see your hometown i want to see your suffering and so they drive on this awful like marathon drive where they're they're you know driving for 50 hours or whatever more and she sleeps on the ferry and all stuff and end up going and having a moment of recognizing each other's suffering. In the most, one of the most powerful scenes of the movie where they both are able, we see what's been underneath the surface that entire time. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And then also accepting people like the people who have hurt us are not good or bad. They have elements that are of both. So that we, we the tendency is to vilify even, you know, is to say you are bad, you are good. And I only, I'm only around good people, which those are judgments. Those aren't really, uh, that's not a reality. Yeah. And so how do we make peace with our past when we've been radically hurt? And I, Mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't know. I think that's one of the hardest things. I mean, death is very challenging, obviously, experiencing the death of a loved one. But betrayal is like its own unique form of suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Because when someone dies that you love, you usually they die still loving you. They die like there's you're able to, to kind of make amends. I mean, that's not always the case, but there, that typically is how it goes. Whereas betrayal, it's like the version of that person dies, but they're still living. And then you have this sort of separate person in your mind or that you communicate with that feels completely different. You can no longer trust that person. And it's just, it's a very different sort of unique thing. And Kafuki has to deal with both of those things, right? He has to deal with the fact that his wife died and that his wife betrayed him and that he still loves her. And it's just, just, it's a mess. And that is hard. That's like all of it right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that, that there was no sense in trying to reduce it to there was, it wasn't reductionist. So it wasn't just share your problems with someone and it, and uh, then you'll be good. Like that wasn't the message. I, I think it, I think the message is it's not going to necessarily be good. It's there. Your suffering is suffering and there isn't, and we're not trying to make sense out of it, but there's also this like, you are not probably the only one suffering 
not that that alleviates your suffering, but that, that there builds, there is a commonality in, in, in these things. And, but we don't tend to get to that point. We tend to, we just don't, we don't see the pain of the other. And, and that seemed to be the key to the, the film here is to see the pain of the other, not to fix it, not to make it, make it better, but to see it. And how the, just recognizing the fact that almost everyone we meet at any given moment has gone through suffering or is going through suffering and that that comes out in different ways. And it explains behavior in ways that we probably can't even tell in the moment. We just look at some people and we think, why are they like that? And a lot of it is the suffering inside of them. And, and yeah, and also last week was Easter week, right? And Mm -hmm. this is something that really struck me more than ever this year. I don't know why, but like it struck me the idea of Christ, God in his bigness, in his majesty, choosing to take on our flesh, choosing to walk in our shoes and experience every form of suffering that we can experience in this life, right? He was completely betrayed by his closest friends, who he actually loved. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like they were just in some superficial relationship. He genuinely, if you think of like how much we have the capacity to love, how much more God in flesh can truly love and connect with someone. And they all ran out on him. They all betrayed him. And the crowds loved him. And then they crucified him. And he had to be on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so this idea that God was willing to walk in our shoes and then the fact that we can now pray Pray to a God that knows intimately firsthand what it's like to be betrayed, what it's like to suffer, Mm. what it's like to experience death. I just think that's so profound and it's so, it really meant a lot to me this year. So it didn't take away from the betrayal you've experienced. It said, no, this is the betrayed God. Yes. And even we do, right? So we betray God. But the idea is like there's there's something to the God experienced something that similar to what we experienced and more so it doesn't f- doesn't like fix us but it it builds a bridge to us to a certain degree or does something that plant it just allows it allows us to see commonality it's a human it's kind of a human condition thing and it's a way of relating to god knowing that he can actually empathize with what we went through in the and in some way that wouldn't be the case if he was just some distant being in the sky that never actually experienced an incarnation it would just be like i must be perfect like god was and i must get over this because god is perfect just has still in some strands how christians depict god but the fact that he was among us and knows it intimately gives us a way of, of relating to him that is similar to the way these characters relate to each other. They've both, ex- we can actually relate to God having both went through suffering. Mm-hmm. Like how cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, it's different. We don't always think we think we have, I think we probably tend to think in about Christ and about God in kind of pat in patterns that we've had for a long, long time. And sometimes those films will like, this is like a film that's kind of bringing some of this out. I mean, obviously it's in the scriptures, but you're going, Oh, okay. This is the God who suffers. This is the God who was betrayed. This is a, a God who can, who's not unfamiliar with the things that we deal with as people. And so those are some of the elements we, you know, we, we might think of God, we get classical theism, always omnipotent, right. always omnipresent. Uh, God Unchanging. is changing. Right, which are none of the things... The Platonic, immovable mover sort of thing. Right, and just classic theism. And so, which, okay, maybe. I don't know, you know, you're going into some process theology stuff, but like what what I see is, like we tend to... Those are all 
the divinity that we see of God, right? Not the human, we don't, it's not the humanness of Christ and that humanity of Christ is so rooted in these things that we see in the film, which is, can you imagine like disappointment, misery, betrayal, you know, Oh, I was seeking like real intimacy and, and you've been betraying me all this time. I mean, that's like, that's, that's a God that I think I feel like more connection to for some reason. A hundred percent. And I think we're scared of God's humanity because we feel like it lessens him somehow when in fact, just the opposite is true. I think it glorifies him even more and that God made our humanity divine through the incarnation Mm -hmm. and made our suffering, gave it meaning. Right. I mean, that's beautiful. So I got to read the quote at the end of the play because there there's this incredible scene at the end where the woman who is the primary sign language woman interacts with uh, Kafuku who's playing Uncle Vanya at the end of this play and the quote that she signs and it's just the patience of that scene is so beautiful and I'm just going to read it in full it's just it kind of size ties up everything we're talking about here and it's a che- it's a Chekhov quote right from the play yes this is from Chekhov from the play Uncle Vanya it's not specific to the movie so the quote is Yes, we shall live, Uncle Vanya. We will live through the long, long days and through the long nights. We'll patiently endure the trials that fate sends our way. Even if we can't rest, we'll continue to work for others, both now and when we've grown old. And when our last hour comes, we'll go quietly. And in that great beyond, we'll say to him that we suffered, that we cried, that life was hard, and God will have pity on us. And then you and I will see that bright, wonderful, dreamlike life before our eyes. We'll shall rejoice with tender smiles on our faces. We'll look back on our current sorrow. And then at last, we shall rest. And that's beautiful, right? And it really just ties together everything we're talking about here. And just, I think no matter what language you present that in, in this case, it's presented through sign language. It resonates. Yeah, it got me. Yeah, it sounds like kind of almost like Job or something. Oh, absolutely. Right. Or the prophets. I also think like I was thinking about like the do not go gentle into that good night. We've heard that. It's Thomas, I think. They're both about death, right? This is about death for sure. So it's like we're just a rage, rage, rage. And I think that's like our typical Western kind of take on it is we got to fight. We got to Nietzsche our way up into like rage against this, against the night, against death. And this is saying like, we're going to endure sufferings and we're going to see the light at the end and God's, and, and yeah. you know, and I think that's a different take on things versus rage, rage, rage. And maybe I'm misinterpreting the latter there, but I feel like we fear death. And this is saying like, no, this is like, God is going to, we're going to know God basically. And we're going to be in, and, and, uh, we're going to endure until then. You know? I mean, that's the hope of Christianity, right? If, that, if, if the ultimate thrust of scripture is that death, even death will be finally swallowed up forever. Right. I mean, which is what it promises. Like I, I love to envision a reality beyond this one where somehow every relationship that we experienced betrayal, every thing that was broken, all the masks that we had to put on in this life just to get by day by day are stripped away. And we're able to, com- to see each other in our essence. Every person is able to see each other in their essence. Every relationship that was broken is somehow restored and reconciled. That to me seems like the kind of ending that God, the master of all story, would make for us. And I truly hope that that is how it all wraps up. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I I do. I think that's our hope, right? So I I agree with you. My friend always says, uh, 
he's a friend of mine that does 12 step and he says, I don't know if it's going to be get right this side of the dirt. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that I like that beauty of what you're saying, but I, I think that I think I lived a long time thinking that I could write every wrong, this side of the dirt. And that may not be the case. It might be that like some of these things are, you know, things that we've experienced or that we've perpetrated against others. There is, it's not going to get right, righted in the shortness of the right. rest of our lives, but that, that Christ, it can't maybe uh-uh. because we're still wearing the masks, maybe because it's just, it, we've, we've screwed it up so much. It's impossible to have restoration, but yeah. that's the hope of something beyond this side of the dirt, right? Yeah. That's so, so I think that like your vision of that and like your description of that, I think that's true. I think that this, this is why this, this film is so powerful. It points us like, it's not easy. And it doesn't point us to like, here's a quick resolution. And I feel like that's the difference. Coda is a very good movie. Coda points us to a feel good scenario where everybody gets what they want and where everybody's life turns out to be super happy in the end. But like reality does not bear that out. It it doesn't hold. And we, sometimes we need that. Because that's the, we need the fairy tale, and I think that's what you see in the Best Picture winner. And I think in this film we see reality, but that's hard. It's hard to watch even because it's because of reality, and hard to be. It's hard. It's hard to be in this film. But I think but it's the payoff. Tr- it's a huge payoff, and it's just true. And so it's, it's true because it's true because it's true, and and it's so honest. I know that Roger Ebert once said about. Werner Herzog, he said he's never done anything that wasn't true or something. Are you, he was, something like that. I can't remember the quote. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've heard it before. Yeah. Everything he's done is true. So the idea is, like I said, he didn't like everything he did, but it was all honest. I sense that in this. Is this is so true. And that's why the critics have picked up on it. And hopefully a few more folks will pick up on it, too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. There you have it. I mean, that's the movie. That's Drive My Car. Now, Tim, what would you say? Just give, go ahead and give us your last word on the movie and your letter grade. Go ahead. Uh, last word on the movie is that there's hope at the end of this movie, is that our our endings can be someone else's beginnings. So maybe some of our things that are our deepest brokenness could actually provide hope for someone else if we're risky enough to share. So I think this movie encourages vulnerability in us and care for one another. And I give it an A, solid A, best movie of the year that I've seen. Hey, can't say anything more than that. It's beautiful, Tim. I, too, will give it a solid A. It's the best movie I've seen from last year, though I have not seen all of them. It's the best one I've seen. And I think I'll leave it at Tim's word. I'll let him have the final word on that. It's beautiful. So there you have it. That is Drive My Car. It is currently streaming on HBO Max. That's right. Our friend, HBO, you can go watch it. So what I would recommend, if it's just, it's just me, but I'd recommend you just, for one month, pay that $14, dear listener. Pay that, you know, maybe don't... Don't go to Starbucks a couple times. Go ahead and pay that money, and then you can watch Drive My Car, and you can watch Station Eleven, and I think you will see similarities between the two, and you will, if nothing else, see two fantastic works of art, and you can do it all in 30 days for just $14. So there is my HBO plug that we are not getting paid for. We're drinking it now. (laughs) Yes, but there you go. So I do hope you guys will check it out. I know that it is, uh, for a lot of you, it's a movie you never heard of. I know maybe some are leery of subtitles, but give it a go. I promise. I mean, just just listening to this, I mean, you've heard what it brought out in us. I think if you are patient and you give this film your time, it will bring out things that you didn't expect. 
So, Tim, next month is May, and the beauty of May is that I'm coming out to your neck of the woods. Yay. So, I am traveling to St. Louis, Missouri to hang out with Tim no, Nelson no, for Kansas a few days. City. And Kansas City. <laughs> that's it. That's what I meant. <laughs> that's okay, Oh, man. my gosh. It's okay. Good thing I'm not driving. I would have plugged in uh, St. Louis. It's a nice, right, St. Louis great. is a nice city. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> No, it's fine. Excuse me. We are going to Kansas City, Missouri, and so I'll be able to hang out with Tim for a few days, and I hopefully what my goal is, I haven't talked to him about this, but hopefully we can work out maybe going to see the movie that we're going to be podcasting on in May together so we can, for the first time in a long time, actually take in the movie experience part at least together and then podcast on it later. I think that would be fun, so we'll see. I think that's that's my goal. Is May a good month for movies historically? It's good. No, there are finally going to be a few movies that are worth seeing. The Northman is coming out. That's the new Robert uh, Eggers movie. Ethan Hawke is in the, Robert Eggers is the director, but Ethan Hawke is, it does star in that movie. And it's apparently, he did The Lighthouse, you know, so it's mm-hmm. got a lot of buzz behind it. So we might end up seeing that. There's also that Nicolas Cage movie <laughs> that's kind of like <laughs> Nicolas Cage being his most Nicolas Cagey. And that actually is getting fantastic reviews. So oh, we'll have to decide which one we're going to land on. Oh, we got to do another Cage probably. movie. We did, we right? did you know one. What I'm saying. We did, was it Mandy? <laughs> what was the one we saw? It was it was that one, that, whole, that crazy horror movie with Nicholas Cage and we we wax poetic about all things. People love people actually love that podcast. They did. They did. That was one of our better ones. <laughs> okay. Well you could we could maybe so, we'll do another Cage movie. He brings out the best maybe. in us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you will we'll find out which one we do, but I'm just really excited to see you, Tim, in person and to take in a movie with you. So we'll cool. have all of that to talk about and more in May. Until then, keep the faith, my friends. We will see you next time.